All right, so I want to ask the question, what is your identity? That sounds like maybe perhaps an easy question, right? But it's not. I think it's a very daunting question. Who are you really? What is, what is your, if I asked you, who are you really? What is your identity? How would you answer that question? Now, if you Google the word identity, the first thing you'll see is Wikipedia. I don't know how that happens, but they're always on top. And so I get most of my education from Wikipedia. And so if you Google the word identity, you'll get Wikipedia. And if you click on that link, you won't, you'll, you'll get a table of contents page, basically, of all the different uses of the word identity. Before we can answer this question, we got to know what you're talking about. So you can talk about identity on all kinds of levels. You can talk about identity on a metaphysical level, talking about how do you identify something? What is an integer? It's crazy. You can talk about it on a psychological level or on a sociological level or on a theological level or on a digital level. There's so many different ways that you could talk about identity. We could understand maybe our cultural identity or our national identity. Some folks struggle with their gender identity or your online identity. (laughs) We even today talk about identity theft. Someone can steal your identity. Really? Can someone steal your identity? So what is your identity? Now, when I was an undergrad, I majored in psychology, minored in philosophy, And those four years, I felt like all we talked about was identity. Because in psychology, you talk about identity, and in philosophy, you talk about identity. Great philosophers have wrestled with this question for hundreds of thousands of years, I think. Great philosophers like John Locke and David Hume and Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. We haven't, you know, they've been wrestling with who am I? What am I? I, Do I even exist? Great psychiatrists. You know, the fathers of psychiatry have made their whole careers around identity. Psychiatrists like um, Carl Rogers or Eric Erickson, and I wish Carrie was here because I know she's studying psychology. She might wiggle and get excited when I say some of these names. And who else? Um, Eric Erickson's Carl Rogers and Carl Jung, Jungian psychology, was all about identity. And so I think when we ask the question, What is your identity? It's really not as easy as it sounds. It could be a very complex question. I think most of the time when we ask ourselves what is our identity, when we think about our identity, we think about it on two levels. That is our psychological identity and our sociological identity. Or to put it another way, our internal identity, our psychological, how we think about ourselves, and our external or how we we work in society, our sociological identity. So who do I think I am? What's the internal picture that I have of myself? And who do I ex- how do I express that person to the world? How does the world see the, me? You know, I think of myself as having broad shoulders and eight-pack abs. But I have a funny feeling that the world doesn't see me that way. I'm starting to learn. So my internal reality, identity, is not the same as my external identity. And I'm always surprised when I see pictures of myself. That's not me. Do you ever get surprised when you see pictures of yourself? Or am I, or am I the only one? Is that really what I look like? Because I imagine myself looking more like Brad Pitt, you know? <laughs> Carl Rogers, he built his whole career around helping people get in touch with their inner self, their ideal self, and make it true for their real self. So every, he, he said, everyone strives to become more like an ideal self. That's that self-image you have. 
the closer one is to their ideal self, the happier they, they will be. So the more that your internal identity looks like your external identity, the happier you'll be. The more harmonious your life will be. Uh, let me explain what that means. If your internal identity, if you think of yourself as, I'm the funny guy, right? I, I'm a funny person. What that means is because you think you're funny, then you're going to always try to be the funny guy. So you're always going to externally express yourself by being funny. <laughs> I'm telling a joke. And that only works if other people actually think you're funny. If you think you're funny and you only think you're funny and no one else thinks you're funny, then you're not funny. <laughs> you're weird. <laughs> and so your internal reality is, I'm funny, but your external reality is, you're weird. And those aren't together. But if you really are funny and people think you're funny and people laugh at you, then you think you're funny and they think you're funny and you'll be happy. And you'll make other people's happy too. Or another example would be if you think that you're a leader. God's given me the gift of leadership. And so I'm a strong leader. I like to lead. I'm always looking for my place to lead in a situation. Again, the only way that works is if other people look at you as a leader and think that you're a leader. Because if you're worthy of being, of being followed, then they will follow you. And you can't be a leader unless someone's following you. So your internal reality is, I think I'm a leader, but your external reality is no one thinks you're worth leading, <laughs> worth following, and so you have no followers, so you're not a leader. Does that make sense? The, so the more your internal can be your external, then the, the happier you'll be, the more harmonious you'll be. Raise your hand if you're completely confused, because that was four years of psychology and philosophy crammed into an opening. Okay, good. Thank you, thank you. Now, how is this going to fit in with Esther? You'll see. We'll, we'll get there. But before we get there, I want to challenge you a little bit. What is your identity? Some people, when you ask them that question, the first thing they think of is their occupation. Well, my name's Bob, and I'm a builder. You know, so can you fix it? <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> thank you. Or, or, you know, my name's um, Sarah, and I'm a mom. And, and, and I love being a mom, and I'm a blogger, because I like to blog about being a mom. <laughs> I want people to know how much I love motherhood. Or sometimes people talk about their hobbies. Well, my name's Mike, and I love fishing, and I fish every single day I can. And I've got five fishing poles on my wall and seven in the back of my truck, and i got fish all over my house. When you come to my house, there are dead fish on all, on all the open spaces on my wall, or deer, or cats, or whatever it is that you like to hunt. <laughs> And that might be your passion. And so your identity gets wrapped up in, I'm a hunter, or I'm a fisher, or I'm a golfer, or I'm the funny guy. So what is your identity? So let's take it three minutes. How would you answer that question if I said, who are you really? What's your identity? And let me give you a hint. Don't overthink it. Don't think, oh, man, I, oh, I don't know. I'm a, you know, and, and try to come up with a resume identity. <laughs> Just give me your, your gut reaction. Who are you? Let's talk three minutes. So what does this got to do with Esther? As you remember, Esther essentially has two identities. Her name is Hadessa, which is her Jewish name, and it's her identity as one of the chosen people of God. She's chosen as God's righteous one. And then she has the second identity, which is Esther, which means hidden. And she's a, it's a Persian name, which means hidden. So she's a Persian queen, and her Jewishness is hidden within the, uh, the palace. She's married to King Xerxes, who thinks he's God. So how can one of the God's chosen righteous Jewish people 
be married to a god. And that's where she finds herself. So she, and she really has two identities. She plays one part well, and, she plays the, and she's learning to play the other part. And what we're going to see today is those two identities are going to come together into God's desire for her. She's going to be walking in her God-given identity. And I think it's going to be interesting as we look at what happens as she changes. So let's look at the passage. Chapter 5, verse 1. Esther's identity. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner courts of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And so let me say this real quickly. Um, it says, first, after three days. And so this gives us kind of a recap of what happened last week. Last week, um, Mordecai was standing at the city gate in ashes, covered in sackcloth, weeping and fasting because Xerxes and his right-hand man, Haman, had declared and issued a decree, a decree to destroy all the Jews in the world, 15 million Jews. And so the Jews are fasting, Mordecai is fasting, and Mordecai tells Esther, you need to do something, you're in the palace for such a time as this, it's time for you to rise up and fulfill your destiny and fulfill your identity. And she says, no. And he says, you better do it or I'll kill you, essentially. And she says, yes, I'll do it. And so she, she does it. And at that point, she not only does it, but she resolves that what he said is true. I have no choice in this. God has put me here for such a time as this. And she said, if I perish, I perish. But, and at this point, Esther stops being pushed around by everybody, and she starts doing the pushing. And she says, Mordecai, you fast, and you command everyone else to fast, and I'll fast for three days, and then I'll go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. And from that moment on, Esther is going to start giving commands throughout the whole book. Before that, she's just been told what to do. He says, go play the, the, the bachelor Persia. She said, yes, sir. He said, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. She said, yes, sir. The eunuch said, don't wear that. She said, yes, sir. And she, and, she, and she became queen that way. But now she's going to start fulfilling her destiny, her identity, and leading. Let's look what happens. She walks into the courtroom. So she is going to approach the king. And as we met last week, we, were, we learned that if the king didn't summon her, he would kill her. Or he would extend his staff, his scepter to her and touch her with it, which was giving her grace, giving her a possibility to walk in. We actually have artwork from this time period still of King Xerxes or King Darius sitting on his throne, holding out his scepter, but behind the person approaching King Xerxes is a giant man with a giant axe. <laughs> so you've got two choices. If Xerxes doesn't put out his scepter, Jim Bob will put out his axe and cut your head off. So she's going to approach this throne, not with confidence, <laughs> but with humility and fear and trembling. And then the writer tells us about the palace. It's the entrance of the palace. And he uses a lot of words there. And the reason why, I think, is because he's trying to get us to see this magnificent throne room. Xerxes had a throne that was elevated on a plane. So you had to actually walk up these stairs to get to his throne. So he stood, sat up there, elevated. And historians will tell you that the room itself was supported by beams that were 65 feet high. That's pretty high. It's a big vaulted ceiling. I'm about just under six foot. I'm five foot 11 and nine centimeters. And so um, 
I'm not going to lift my hand all the way up so I don't reveal my belly button, but I would imagine this, this ceiling is probably eight and a half foot tall, maybe nine foot tall. A basketball goal is 10 foot tall. So if you're a little over six foot and you can jump a little well, you can slam dunk on a basketball goal. But if you're under six foot and you're kind of chubby, there's no way you're going to be able to slam on a 10 foot goal. So imagine 65 feet high. That's how high his throne room is. It's an, it's, it's an ominous room. And she's walking in to see what will happen. 50-50 chance. Either she's going to get the scepter or she's going to get the axe. What do you think will happen? Dun, dun, dun. This is a great time for commercial. <laughs> Verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in her hand. Whew. Oh, man, I don't know about you guys, but I was nervous. Then... Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, Well, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Okay, so this is interesting to me. First thing, he gives her favor. She found favor. And as we covered before, that word literally can be translated grace. The God, named Xerxes, extended unto her grace. And, and what's interesting to me is this. Just as Esther spent three days in her room fasting before she approached the king to see if she would live or die, Jesus spent three days in the tomb before he approached his father to see if his death was good enough to cover all of our sins. And it was, and it still is. She comes out on that third day after Passover, which is when the decree was given, and she comes to the king, and she's trembling. But you and I, we don't approach the king like that, do we? Jesus sits on the throne, and he is God, and he is sovereign, but we approach his throne with confidence. It says this in Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of Christ... Because Christ spent three days in the tomb and approached his father, you and I can approach the throne with confidence. Can you imagine that? There's, 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 this, I, there's this parallelism in this story about Esther approaching the God named Xerxes and us approaching the God named God. <laughs> we get to approach his throne with confidence, knowing there's no axe. There's just grace. So be encouraged. Approach his throne if you need to. And then she says to him, he says to her, what do you want, Esther? Obviously you want something because you risked your life to get it. What is it? Name it up to half the kingdom. I'll give it to you. Now, if I were Esther, I would say, that sounds nice, half the kingdom. Remember, Xerxes rules the world. Half the world. I'll take the North Hemisphere, please. <laughs> Well, this is a common phrase that kings would use back then. You've probably heard this phrase before. You've maybe heard it before in the Bible even. This is the kind of thing that kings would always say, up to half of my kingdom. And no one took them seriously. No one would ever take them up on it because it wasn't meant to be taken up on. If you did take them up on it, it might be bad news. I don't know. There is actually a story in the New Testament about another guy named something the Great. His name's Herod the Great. And he, was, he got divorced and remarried just like Xerxes got divorced and remarried. And he had a party and got drunk just like Xerxes had a party and got drunk. And so when his wife came to him, just as Esther came to him, he said, up to half my kingdom because your daughter danced for me. 
Just like the story, isn't it? So far, it's just like the story. And she didn't ask for half the kingdom, but she asked for something politically that might have been. And that was for whose head? John the Baptist's head on a platter. So anyway, Xerxes says up to half my kingdom, and he doesn't really mean that. He means whatever it is you want, better ask, because I'll give it to you. And she says, come and with Haman to dinner that I've prepared for you. And I'm thinking, maybe she should have been more like Herod the Great's wife and say, give me Haman's head on a platter. That would have been nice. Why? Because he's Hitler and I hate him. That's why. <laughs> and because he's trying to kill me and I'm a Jew. Oh, by the way, I'm a Jew. I didn't tell you that. I know I've been married for five years, but I'm a Jew. Xerxes doesn't know she's a Jew. Haman doesn't know she's a Jew. Xerxes doesn't even know that the so-called people that Haman wants to kill are the Jews. He has no idea. So this is a very interesting story. And it's very interesting to me that Esther says, instead of giving me Haman's head on a platter or kill Haman right now because he's Hitler, or I need to talk to you, you've commanded to kill all the Jews of which I'm one and my dad too. She says, I made dinner for you. <laughs> I guess the way to a man's heart is in his stomach. But why? I don't know. How could she do? 15 million people are dying. I mean, they're out there dying right now. They're out there fasting and mourning and weeping and wondering when the day will come when they will die. And she says, let's eat dinner. Do you ever just think this is a bad idea? Maybe she should rush in and cry or something. How many of you would rush in and cried or something? Yeah, me too. Like, I don't have that kind of self-control. Sometimes I just rush right in and say, and just spill it all over the place and then realize, wait a minute, maybe I should have done something different. So we see already that Esther is showing wisdom and prudence in her new identity, different kind of identity than she had before. Let's look what happened. It gets even, even weirder. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly. So he came. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and they were drinking wine after the feast. That's good. So after dinner, they're drinking wine. He's going to get a little happier. This would be a good time to ask him maybe, you know. She's smart. She knows how to fill his belly and give him wine. The king said to Esther, all right, this isn't what you wanted. This is not what you risked your life for was to make me dinner. So what is it? And don't forget, I'll give you half my kingdom. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is colon commercial time. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Verse 8. If I have found favor in your side of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, come on, get on with it. Say it. That's what I'm thinking. Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow, and then I'll do as the king has said. <laughs> what is she doing? I have no idea what she's doing. Like, I would have already spilt the beans. Maybe she's just trying to warm his heart towards her again. Maybe she feels like this isn't the right time. You know, you, I've done this before where I'm trying to sell a deal and I know I had it all prepared. The speech was ready to go. I started to deliver the speech. There was an interruption and I decided maybe now I'm not is a good time. Maybe tomorrow. I don't know what's happening here. But I do know one thing that's happening here. She is exhibiting a kind of character that a lot of us have a hard time exhibiting. And that is she's exhibiting self-control and patience and gentleness and faithfulness that she doesn't have to rush in and do this tonight. It can wait till tomorrow. I, I don't know about you, but none of those things are characters that anyone would say about me and my identity. And if you were picking up what I was saying when I was saying what I was saying just now, you might have said, those sound familiar. Those sounds kind of like the fruit. Those sounds like fruit of the Spirit. 
Galatians tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And right now, five chapters into this story, we've not seen anything like this. We've seen drunkenness, we've seen anger, we've seen hatred, we've seen materialism, we've seen jealousy, we've seen everything but these things. And so all of a sudden, Esther is walking into her full identity, which I believe is found in Christ Jesus. That she all of a sudden is standing in her identity, exhibiting this character, and it's going to work, even though you and I are saying, get on with it. So she has an identity. And she's actually, the internal identity that God gave her at birth when her name was Hadessa is now reaching to her external identity when her name is Esther. And now she's not just um, Hadessa at home and Queen Esther in the palace. Now she's Queen Esther the Jew. And she's walking in that identity. Sometimes we will actually end up walking in our identities. And I know that you know this to be true, right? God has put you here for a purpose, and some days you're walking in that purpose. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. And it feels great, doesn't it? Or sometimes it doesn't. It might mean a gun to your head. Okay, so now what we're going to see in the last seven verses of this book is sort of a character sketch. We just saw Esther, and we just saw that she's actually walking in her new identity, which has been given to her by Christ. Finally, and now we're going to see, in contrast, Haman walking in his identity. And we already know what his external and his internal identity are. If you've been walking through this series, you know he's a selfish, arrogant, prideful, foolish man. And so we're going to see his identity. And what I want you to know from the very beginning is that his identity is wrapped up in his idolatry. You'll see it in this verse. Let's look at it. Verse 8. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Of course, he just got invited to dinner with the queen of Persia, Esther, the most beautiful girl in the world. She risked her life to have dinner with me, is what he's thinking. She, she risked her life to go up to Xerxes and say, I want to have dinner with you and Haman. And so I just ate dinner with Xerxes the Great and Queen Esther, and we had wine and she wants me to come back tomorrow. Only me and Xerxes and her. I have arrived, is what he's thinking. He's walking on sunshine. Oh, yeah. He's walking on sunshine. Oh, yeah. And don't it feel good? That's what he's doing. <laughs> and then this happens. But, second part of that verse, when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. This is interesting. He's walking on cloud nine. Oh, it's been a good day. And then Mordecai, you know, gives him the, the bird or whatever you want to think, you know, through this situation. And now he's mad. And I think it's interesting. Here's a little side note. Here's a free win. Here's a freebie. I'm just going to make a confession to you. I'm, I wrestle with whether or not Mordecai is making the right choice or the most foolish choice in the world. So here, here he is in ashes and sackcloth. The reason why he's here in ashes and sackcloth is because Haman wants to destroy all the Jews. And the reason why Haman wants to destroy all the Jews is because Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. And as we covered in those weeks, that doesn't mean worship him. It means respect the uniform, salute to the uniform, respect the office. And Mordecai refuses to respect his office. 
And so when Haman's walking on cloud nine and comes up to, to, to Mordecai, Mordecai's got two choices now. Continue to act the way he has been acting, which has gotten him into this trouble and all his people, or maybe this might be a good time to start smoothing things out. I mean, should he stand up and bow down and say, Haman, sir, I'm sorry, sir. You know, I think, sir, we got off on the wrong foot. I'm sorry. I'm going to bow down one more time. You know, I'm sorry about this. You know, we've, I've made some mistakes. Please recant. Please take back your decree to destroy my people. Sounds like the Christian thing to do, right? Humble yourself. Ask for forgiveness. Be, be vulnerable. Serve. Become the lowest. But instead, he's sitting there, he's fasting, and Haman, and Haman walks by and he's like, huh. you know what I mean? And he's not going to give him the time of day, he's not going to look at him with you know, respect, he's not going to tremble, he's not afraid of him. He has no respect for this foolish man. And in my life, I've been in both places. In my life, he, he's either making a foolish mistake by not submitting and forgive and asking for forgiveness or he's right you know what i mean gosh darn it i'm right i'm gonna stand my ground and as a man i've wrestled with those two questions all my life sometimes i'm like no i'm not gonna say i'm sorry no i'm not gonna respond to that i'm not gonna dignify that email with a response you know what i mean i'm not gonna respond to that guy forget it i'm right he's gonna have to forgive he's gonna have to ask me for forgiveness i'm gonna stand my ground and sometimes my wife has said, no, 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 no. You've got to be the bigger man. You've got to say you're sorry, even though he was wrong. I agree. You know, and you've got to humble yourself. Where, have you ever, raise your hand if you've ever been there. Okay, yeah, good. I'm not the only one. And, and don't you think that sometimes it is right to stand your ground? Sometimes you do need to humble and ask for forgiveness. And sometimes my wife has convinced me and she's usually right. And sometimes I've not held my ground and I'm usually wrong. I mean, have held my ground and I'm usually wrong. I don't know if he's foolish or he's courageous, but I think that the two of those are really close together. Don't you? Well, let's move on to the story. He's not going to do anything to Mordecai. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself. That was nice of him. And he went home. Why? Why did he restrain himself and go home? Well, because he's having a good day. He doesn't want Mordecai to ruin his good day. He's got something to say. Here's what he's going to say. Nevertheless, Haman restrained went home, and he was sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to his friends the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And guess what? Tomorrow also, I'm invited by her together with the king. <laughs> I have arrived. Look at me. I've got it all. I've been promoted so many times. And right now I'm second in charge of Persia. I'm King Xerxes' right-hand man. And guess what? Just to top it all off, Queen Esther likes me. She wants to eat dinner with me. And I, I'm, you guys are lucky to know me. You know, I'm a, I'm a good friend to have. Because I've, I've, I've gotten his idolatry is that he wants to be respected. He wants to be advanced. He wants to be great. He wants to be honored. He wants to be famous. Like most of us. All of us want that. Most men want to be honored and respected. I learned that in psychology. But Haman idolizes honor and respect. 
this is, this is very similar to what we do today. What we do today is, like, like, if you can imagine what it would be like if you got to eat dinner or lunch with someone famous and amazing. Let's say, I don't know, name a famous person that you don't like to eat dinner with, somebody. Bruce Willis. So, Bruce Willis says, H.J., you and me only, buddy. Let's go out and grab some wings. You go eat wings with Bruce Willis. I'm willing to bet money you're going to find a way in that conversation to snap a shot, put it on Instagram, and then when you get home, you don't have Facebook, but maybe you can get your wife to do it for you. Put it on Facebook and say, ladies and gentlemen of the world, <laughs> I ate lunch with Bruce Willis. He's my bud. You're going to do that. You're going to just, you're going to let, you want the world to know how cool you are because you've arrived. We do, I see this all the time on Facebook, and I'm sorry if you're one of those people who do that. I'm sorry if I stepped on your toes. But people do it all the time. Look at me. I've accomplished something. I've done something. I've been with somebody that's important, and I feel like you need to know because, well, I'm just walking on sunshine right now. His idolatry is his fame and his fortune and his honor and his respect. But look what happens. When you have an idol, this always happens. It says... Yet, verse 13, all of this is worth nothing to me, which is a lie. That's a lie. He wouldn't be walking on sunshine if that was true. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. It's so funny that he said that because it's so true. When we have an idol, we are on sunshine when our idol is, you know, when being stroked, if you will. I've got an idol and Right now, my idol is fame, and I'm famous, so I'm happy. But it's so fickle. We, are, we can let anything get in the way of that. I have everything, but you know what? There's this one. I have so much honor, so much respect from King Xerxes and from Queen Esther, but you know what? It means nothing to me because this one stupid guy won't respect me. Isn't that interesting? Here's something to think about. Don't you do that? I do. I mean, things could be going great. We have so, we've been given so much. God has blessed me so much. I got three beautiful children and an amazing wife and a home, and I eat well, as you can tell. And so I've, you know, so much blessings. But then one little thing can ruin my day. One little phone call, one little email. Sometimes I even make up things in my head, you know? It's like, I think that person doesn't like me anymore. And because one of my idols is that I want people to like me, it ruins my day because I feel like I have to fix it and make them like me again. And they may not even not like me anymore. It's just that I thought they don't. So I ruin my, I could be out at the zoo with my kids and say, you know, that one person gave me a dirty look the other day. Oh man, my life is ruined. I don't say those things out loud. But it's like it does that in my heart. Raise your hand if you're with me. Okay, good, good. So we've got so much going for us, and yet we get so distracted by these little things. It's because of idolatry and our identity. So he says, I hate my life because of Mordecai. And Mordecai's nothing. He's a stupid little Jewish old guy. You know what I mean? Sitting on the floor wearing, what's he wearing? Sackcloth. I mean, come on. He doesn't even have any clothes. Why is he so upset about this guy? Then his wife, Zeresh, here's, here's a wife with some good advice for her husband. And all his friends said this to him. I've got an idea. Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then you can go joyfully with the king to his feast. 
then you can forget about Mordecai, and then your life will be perfectly happy. And what do you think Haman thought of it? The next verse says, he was very pleased with this idea, and he commanded his people to build the gallows. I want to paint this picture for you. 50 cubits equals 75 feet high. Do you remember how high I said Xerxes' throne room was? 65 feet. So this is 10 feet. This is one basketball goal higher than Xerxes' throne room. So, so Haman is essentially saying, my respect and my honor is so important that because this guy won't honor and respect me, I want to put him on a pole 75 feet high so that the world will know what happens to you if you don't pay, if you don't stroke my idol. Can you get your mind around how high 75 feet is? I mean, this was ancient Persia. They didn't have cranes. They, I, don't know, I don't know how they even got. Solomon's temple, I think, was 35 feet high. Xerxes is 65 feet. Mordecai is going to be hung 75 feet in the air. Again, 10, basketball, 10, 10 foot basketball goal. That's seven and a half basketball goals. Just to give you a picture, the tallest dinosaur known to man is called a Breviparopos. That's the Texas version of his name. Breviparopos. I don't know how to say it. Look how tall he is of all the other dinosaurs. The maximum size of a Tyrannosaurus rex is 25 feet. So a, a Tyrannosaurus rex is about here. A man, see this man? Not quite 10 foot tall. Tyrannosaurus rex here. That's how high 75 feet is. Can you imagine walking through town and seeing someone hanged that high up? Now, another thing I need to tell you this is when we see that word gallows, we think American Western, right? I'm going to hang them on a gallows. So we think of this noose and trap door. But that's not what a gallows is in the Bible. In fact, what it really is is just a pole. They would, they, would, they would kill him, maybe even decapitate him, and put his head on the pole and run the pole through him and stick him up as high as they could. This is the way they would do it back then. This is why the Bible is constantly saying, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, hangs on a pole, where, where Moses would put a snake up on a pole. And Jesus says, just as Moses put the snake on the pole so that anyone that looked at the snake would be healed, so the Son of Man will be elevated on a pole so that anyone who looks at him will be healed. And so this is the, what, the, what it really means. It wasn't a, a noose. It was a pole, 75 feet high. The Persians invented Roman crucifixion, by the way. I don't think I mentioned that before. The Persians invented it. The Romans mastered it. So, so this is definitely a typological thing about Christ. Lift them up as high as you can for the world to see. Here's the deal. When we have an idolatry, we also always demonize the opposite of idolatry. Jonathan Edwards, he says, if you idolize, you also demonize. I've never really given this a lot of thought until this week. What that means is whatever it is that you idolize, you automatically demonize the opposite thing. So for Haman, for instance, he idolizes respect and honor. So therefore, he's going to demonize anyone who doesn't respect and honor him. And that's the Jew, and therefore all the Jews, because they won't respect and honor him. Americans are commonly known to, be, to idolize money. We tend to idolize money. So what does that mean, that we demonize? Well, we demonize the opposite of wealth and money. And, and I think we do. We demonize the poor. We, demon, we say, well, they don't work hard enough. I made this money. I worked hard. They can do it. We demonize anything that gets in the way of our bottom line. 
So it may not be the poor, but it may be this new, um, you know, political maneuver that they've just done to make me pay more taxes. So now that gets in the way of my bottom line. So my idol is money, and my demon is anyone who creates policies that will hurt me financially. Does that make sense? I can come up with more examples. We idolize, well, what do you idolize? Let's talk about that. What's your idolatry? And then you'll know what your idolatry is because you tend to demonize the opposite. Oh, let me give another example I had. Christians idolize things. Christians idolize Christianity. Have you ever thought about that? We tend to idolize religion, if you will. And so what does a, we call these people legalists, right? Legalistic, religious, pharisaical, whatever, you want, whatever word you want to use. If they idolize these things, what is it that they demonize? Anything, anyone that doesn't agree with what they idolize. So if you wear blue jeans, drink, listen to rock and roll, or, or go with girls who wear jeans, whatever it is that they used to say, then, then all of a sudden, you're a demon. You're, you're the evil one because you obviously can't be a Christian because this is what we believe as Christians, and you're not one, and if you say you're one, then you're evil, you're a heretic, you're a wolf in sheep's clothes, clothing, and so we're going to demonize you. Raise your hand if you've ever experienced that. Raise your hand if you've ever done that. So you can't, you can't raise your hand only one time. You've got to raise it both times because if you've ever experienced it, you've done it too because you probably demonize them. Oh, I have. You demonize them. Maybe they're not Christians and they're evil because they're like Pharisees and Jesus hated the Pharisees. <laughs> so see, we're all in trouble of idolatry. So let's answer this question. What is your idolatry? Because here's the thing. Your identity frequently gets wrapped up in your idolatry. When I asked you earlier, what's your identity? Some of you said Christian, that's great. Some of you said mother, that's great. Some of you said, you know, Bob the Builder, I don't know, that's great. But it also could be your idol, which could not be so great. And idols are always good things that turn into God things. Does that make sense? Idols are never, or rarely, they're bad things. They're usually good things that we make ultimate things. And so here's some questions to get you thinking about what your idol is. If you're, if you're willing to be vulnerable and honest, answer this question. What do you get emotional about? What frustrates you? What causes you to get angry? What causes you to seethe? What causes you to get depressed? What causes you to get happy and overjoyed? These things can tell you a lot about what your idolatry is. So let's take three minutes and talk about what is your idolatry. Moving right along. I want to close with this. Jesus gives a better identity. Amen. It's all about Jesus. This story is all about Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. And the reason why we're here is not to worship Esther because she fails quite a bit, but Jesus never fails. And Jesus gives the best, the better identity. He gives us a new identity. And so if our identity is in what we've done or what we do or who we are, then that's a false identity because Christ has given us an ultimate, a better, a new identity. And if our identity is wrapped up in our idolatry, which is the things that we want and the things that we need, acceptance, people to like me, being right, our children, then again, that is a wicked idolatry that also has a demon behind it that we will demonize the opposite of those things and it ruins our life so we'll never be walking on sunshine because as soon as we are if something will get in the way our kids will fail our you know we, we won't be accepted gosh darn it we're wrong once in a while and our lives ruined but jesus gives us a better identity and i'm going to just go ahead go ahead and raise my hand and i'm going to ask you to raise yours <laughs> she's already raising it 
Do you ever wonder why, if that's true, then why is it that we still suffer from the things that we suffer with? You know what? We're still wrapped up in our own identities. We're still wrapped up in our own idolatries. But Jesus gave us a better identity. And if I could go back to the psychological, sociological thing, you know, like Carl Rogers was saying, if your internal reality is the same as your external reality, you're more harmonious and therefore happier, healthier well-being. If my internal reality is that I've been created as a new creation, given an identity from Christ Jesus, then why is it that I see in my own life and in everyone else's life, it seems, that our external reality is not that? And if that's the case, then there must be a lot of miserable people our God-given identity doesn't match our sociological identity, our external identity. We need to know, as Esther needed to know, that she was Hadessa, the righteous one, chosen of God, a Jew put in Persia for such a time as this. And once she realized, you were right, Mordecai. There's no other reason why it would make sense for me to be queen of Persia so that I can save my people. Now I know what I need to do. And she begins to walk in the fruits of the Spirit. Her external identity matches the internal identity that Jesus Christ gave her. And you and I, I think that it will be a glorious day when we have that awakening that Esther had today. Wow. Jesus has made me a new creation. And I'm going to stop worrying whether or not people like me. I'm going to stop worrying about my kids knowing that he has them in his hands and his sovereign in his care. I'm going to stop worrying about being right because I'm always wrong anyway. And I'm, just, I'm not saying you're always wrong, but you know what I mean. I'm not going to stop worrying about these things because Jesus is all and in all and of all and through all and for all. It's all about Jesus. I could have pulled a thousand verses, but here's one of my favorite ones. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, say it with me, new creation. The old has passed away. How many of you are glad to hear that? Amen. The old is gone. It doesn't matter whose bed your boot's been under, you know? It's, it's That's an old country song, by the way. It doesn't matter what dark alley you've crawled out of. It doesn't matter who you've hurt or who you've ignored or what taxes you still owe back on, you know? It's, it doesn't matter because you, the old is gone. And I don't know about you, but I have old from today <laughs> that needs to be gone. The old is gone. It's passed away. Behold, which means look, look. Do this with me. Look. The new has come. You're a new creation. You have been given a new identity. Won't you look? Look at that new identity. It's yours. You need to know what that identity is so that you can start walking in it. Because, see, Mordecai essentially had to say to her, look. Look, Esther, for such a time as this, it doesn't make any sense. Why would look at your identity? And then she said, you're right. If I perish, I perish. I am going to go in there, and I'm going to take what I have to take if I have to take it. So look, the new has come. And all this is from God, hallelujah, through Christ who reconciled us, which means he saved us and brought us back into a fun relationship with him. We once were separated, he's, made it he's reconciled us back to himself. And he gave us, he gave us something. He gave us something to do, especially for those of us who get our identity wrapped up in what we do. He's given us something to do, and that is the ministry 
of reconciliation. What is that? Well, he's going to tell you. That is, comma, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sin against them. That's the oldest past stuff. It's good news. And entrusting to us, this amazes me every day, the message of reconciliation. Huh. What is, what is the ministry of reconciliation? It is that from the beginning of time, God has been reconciling the world back to himself, which means he's not counting your sins. He's forgiving your sins. He's saying, forget about it. I want to be in a relationship with you. And because of that, he's giving you the message of that, that message. Why? Because you're a sinner and you've been forgiven. And now that you can walk in that identity of forgiveness, don't you want to tell people, you know what? I used to have this heavy burden on me of past. And then I met Jesus and it's gone. And I'm walking on sunshine. Oh, yeah. I'm walking on sunshine, and don't it feel good, and I want you to feel this good. Therefore, okay, so that's the big Greek Pauline word. Therefore, what does that mean? It means now that you know who your identity is, now that you look inside and see the new creation, know this, we are ambassadors, not of Christ, but for Christ, which means that Christ is no longer walking on the earth He's at home on his throne, and he is sending us out on this earth as his ambassador to represent him, God making his appeal through us. I hope this keeps you awake tonight. I want it to. Your identity is that you're a new creation, and God has given you that identity, and it's good because your past is gone and the new has come, and that is good. But with that identity, if your external identity begins to match your internal identity, or if you look at that internal identity and say, this is who I am in Christ Jesus, then you begin to walk in that externally, then what are you entrusted with? God is making his appeal through you. You see, because he can't, he's not, he could. I guess he could get an airplane, you know, to kind of paint it in the sky. Jesus loves you or whatever. And that would be a bit cheesy, but he could do that. But instead what he's done is he said, I'm making, I'm giving you the identity I'm giving you the ministry. I'm giving you the, 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 to be an ambassador, and I'm making my appeal through you. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become, and here's our ultimate identity, the righteousness of God. What's Hadessa's name mean? The righteous one. Hadessa is the righteousness of God. And you and I have all been given that identity. We are the righteousness of God. And God is making his appeal to the world through you. He has given you a new identity. He's given you the ministry of reconciliation. And he's made you an ambassador. Okay. That's your new identity. Can you walk in that? The more your internal identity is reflected as your ex by your external identity, the more healthy you will be, the more happy you will be. And I've already asked you earlier in this conversation, have you ever done that and doesn't it feel great? And everyone's like, yeah, the times when I'm walking in my identity is the times when I'm walking on sunshine, oh yeah. So why is it that we get so distracted with so many other things? Father in heaven, we are humbled by the fact that you would extend to us grace. Can't even imagine what it would be like in Esther's shoes to approach the throne of a horrible king. 
I can't even imagine what it would be like in my shoes to approach the throne of a humble and a faithful and a loving and a graceful king. I would still be afraid. I would still shudder. And yet, you promise us through your scripture that we could approach your throne in confidence, that we could stand in strength, that we can be encouraged knowing that you are a good father, that when we ask for a piece of bread, you do not give us a snake, that when we ask for forgiveness, you are quick to forgive and slow to give anger. And so, Father, we gather here tonight to worship you because you are good. And I pray, Lord, that we would also come to your throne and seek your identity for our lives. And might we not pursue our idolatries? Might we lay those at your feet? And might we seek our identity? Will you please make us into children who are the righteousness of God, who learn to walk in their identities? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.